Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mado, and I'm the director of academic programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. We are back this week with a special episode on friendship in conjunction with our annual conference that takes place every year in October here at Bard College in New York. This year's topic is friendship and politics, and over the next few weeks and months, we are releasing four specials on essays by Arendt connected to the theme of friendship. Our first one is called Humanity in Dark Times from Arendt's book, Man in Dark Times. The second text is Socrates in The Promise of Politics. Our third friendship special discusses Jaspers, an essay that is also in Man in Dark Times. And lastly, we will analyze a letter to Gershom Scholem that was published in the Jewish Writings. To learn more about our conference on friendship and politics, please visit our website at hac.bard.edu. I am thrilled to now hand it over, like every week, to our host Roger Berkowitz, founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center. He will dissect these texts with and for you, the political context, Arendt's take on friendship, and why it was important to her. Please leave us a like or comment and make sure to share today's reading with your friends. So today we are back to this book, Men in Dark Times, one of her really spectacular collections of essays that she collected and published during her lifetime. And we're reading two talks. We're going to focus primarily on the first one, but, but we'll also touch on the second both in reference to Karl Jaspers. Karl Jaspers was a a German psychologist and psychological thinker and philosopher. He was also Hannah Arendt's advisor on her dissertation on Augustine. After the war, they became, they moved from being student and professor to uh, close friends. It's an important uh, distinction. I'm going to I wasn't sure when I was going to do this, but I'm going to read an excerpt of a letter that Arendt wrote to another friend of hers, Hilda Frankl, Frankl, Hilda Frankl, on December 21st, 1949. It's after her first trip. It's during her first trip back to Germany. She's still in Germany, I believe. And um, she had just spent some time at, at Jasper's house with his, him and his wife. And unfortunately, I, I, I didn't put the English down. So I, I, I'm going to do something really crude. I'm just going to translate it on the fly. But um, she writes to Hilda Frankel, spent the weekend at, Jas- at the Jasper's house, and it was precisely as I had hoped. Only that I, I think, was even more unbefangener, un, uh, uncaptured, un, un, you know, more free, without limits, as I thought I would be. There were long discussions from morning to evening that were unbroken. And there was a wonderful mix, a mixed upness 
of philosophy and personal things, very personal. And I've found myself immediately touched and and totally at peace uh, and then slept well. And then she adds, I've I almost never smoked and I didn't even notice it, uh, which for those of you who know Hannah Arendt uh, and her smoking is, 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 is something to, to behold. In any case, the point is that she was first a student of Jasper's and then became a very close friend of his. I, one might think that he was one of her absolute closest friends. And these, these two essays uh, that we're reading today, well, speeches, are, are praises of Jasper's. And um, are are very much in the spirit of praising what she considers to be a friend. One of the things I do hope to do in this reading group at some point is read the correspondence between Arendt and Jaspers, which I think is one of the greatest philosophical correspondences ever. It's been out of print now for over a couple of years. And as soon as it comes back into print, which I hope will be soon, I'm hoping that we as a group can read it, uh, or at least large excerpts of it together which would be highly worthwhile. In any case, this Laudatio uh, is, a, is an address that Arendt delivered in German in 1958 for the German Peace Prize, the German Book Trades Peace Prize. And uh, it was translated by Clara and Richard Winston in the, uh, in, the, in the version you have. Arendt begins the essay with a, a distinction that I think has not been taken seriously enough by many RN scholars and yet is is super uh, important to her understanding her general thinking but also to her thinking about friendship and she says that um we're awarded we're, we're assembled for this peace prize and it's awarded to a person that seems obvious right but you know one of these things we have to constantly ask ourselves is what does she mean by person you know these common english words we need to think about Person comes from the Latin personare. It's that which sounds through. A person in Roman law was different from a human being, right? A person was a citizen. It was someone who, in whom the Roman law sounded through. And thus, it was a mask that you wore that turned you from being a human being into a citizen, insofar as you became. Uh, someone who had public standing insofar as you were a person. And so you give this award, this laudatio, uh, a laudatio is a praise to the dignity and greatness of persons. And she says that to give a laudatio, to speak about the dignity and greatness of a person, is not the business of experts and scholars. It's about a public judgment. He's been given an award. and. We have to express what it is about him as a person that is worthy of being brought to before the public. Um, and she says that in doing and thinking about this, what is it about Jasper's person that is worthy of being brought up to the public? We have to free ourselves, she says, from a modern prejudice. We think that when we talk about what's important about a, a thinker, uh, we only think about their work, their with their objective work and what and, and what they've written. And she says that's that's a modern prejudice that we have to free ourselves from. There's an older prejudice, an older idea of the public, 
what she says is more proper, which is that we have to bring to forward into the public the human person in all his subjectivity, not the person as a private matter, but the person as a public person. And she says that in politics, personality is not private, but political. And so we need to understand what this personality is. And she immediately harkens back to this uh, idea of the daimon, the Greek word daimon, which is not a demon. But in, in, in Plato's dialogues about Socrates, Socrates always had a daimon who would sit, sort of appear behind him as his other self, who would appear when there was a chance that Socrates might do something wrong or that he would be unhappy with. And the daimon was, in a sense, I mean, in some way, his conscience, but it was this thing, this, this thing that appeared over your shoulder that you could never see, but others could see. It was your, it was your public, it was the, it was your character. It was the personal element in a man that made someone stand out. And she says this daimon can only be seen in a public space, in a place where you appear in public and others see not only you, but you with your daimon, you with your aura, you with your character, you know, that, that holds you together. And that when there's a spiritual realm, this daimon, in conjunction with you, makes up what she calls humanitas, humanity, your humanity. And your humanitas, your humanness, she says, is valid without being objective, right? Valid without being objective. It's what makes you who you are. And there's no objective way to figure out who you are. There's no scientific analysis of who you are. It's not something uh, you acquire in solitude. Uh, it's not something you, you gain by putting your work into the public. It's only something you acquire by venturing into the public realm. Insofar as you enter the public realm, you, you join a Zoom call in the public, you, 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 you give a speech, you, you appear at a town hall meeting, you teach a course, you become, you risk revealing something about yourself, which is not subjective which is not private. It's who you are. It's your personality. And, and this humanitas is the gift that she thinks Jaspers gives us. It's a vision of what it means to be a person with public gravitas, someone in whom the bright light of the public shines that doesn't make all things flat, like Heidegger thought the public did, right? Heidegger says that in the public, People speak and gossip and this and that, and everything is flat. And she's saying that there is a way to enter the public so that you bring with you a kind of thing that ennobles and shows the humanity of man. There's a bit of a, a kind of hagiography going on here. I mean, it is a laudatio, and yet it's, it's, it's being done, I think, in the service of trying to make an important point um, that what made Jasper's so stark in his humanitas was not that he had suffered, right? You know, so some of you know, he, he's married to a Jewish woman. And as a result, he was stripped of all his, his job and titles. 
but was allowed to live throughout the war with his wife, a Jewish woman, on this one street in Germany, in Berlin, where these mixed marriage couples were allowed to live throughout the whole war. But that even when he was alone and suffering, what made him human, she says, is that he stood entirely alone and was independent of all groupings. His untouchability, his untastbarkeit, was self-evident, she says, and would remain firm in the midst of catastrophe. And that this was something fascinating about being inviolable. She saw in him somebody who was simply untouchable in his goodness, even as he was stripped of all of his jobs and titles and, and, and professions. You knew he could never give in. You knew he could never collaborate, unlike someone like, you know, Heidegger or many others, and that evil was not even a temptation for him. And so she says that there was an assurance that in times when everything could happen, one thing could not happen, and that this was his sort of character. She says that the humanitas that he has, whose existence he guaranteed, grew from a native region of his thought, and this region was never unpopulated. And this is one of the key transitions in the essay and one of the core thoughts that we've been talking about in this discussion of friendship and thinking. The humanitas grew from a native region, region in his thought, and this region was never unpopulated. So that remember, thinking is something you do when you're alone. You withdraw from the world. And yet in thinking, you're never alone. You're never in an unpopulated region because in thinking, you're constantly bringing others before you. You're constantly holding conversations with in this, in this kind of enlarged mentality that she talks about from Kant. You're constantly imagining conversations with other people. So the individual himself, she'll say, cannot be reasonable. You have to be in conversation with others. And Jaspers, even though he and his wife were alone on the street and cut off was never in solitude, never for einsamt, or never, never completely alone. And he lived in this populated region of a home. She says, there's something fascinating about a man's being inviolable, untemptable, unswayable at the bottom of 76 into 77. And I just want to point out, you know, something that's a little challenging to talk about, but is important, the erotic nature of, of these kind of conversations, right? There's something fascinating about a man's being inviolable, untemptable, unswayable. And we have to understand that, you know, he was her teacher. He was someone she, to a certain extent, idolized. I don't think you can think of it outside of some level of, of Eros. You know, Heinrich Blucher, her husband, who she also, in his original, in her original conversations with him in, in Paris, in the 1930s, found a very strong erotic element too. He defines friendship in his own lectures. This is Blucher, not Arendt, but I think it's something they share. Is He says, friendship means love without eros. The eros is overcome. It was there in the beginning, but it has been overcome and it doesn't count anymore. What counts now is the mutual insight of two personalities who recognize and respect each other as such. 
who in effect can say to each other, I guarantee you the development of your personality and you guarantee me the development of mine. That is the basis of all real community thinking. And such a community can only start with friends. Now that's Blucher, Arendt's husband, but I think it also um, is very close to the way Arendt thinks about this. There has to, in, in, in friendship, there's often a fascination, a kind of draw, a bind, but it becomes overcome and it turns into what she calls respect or what, you know, as Blucher says, two personalities who recognize and respect each other. And then you can guarantee each other this development. She says that for Jaspers, she was just amazed by his independence, something I think many of us are in awe of when we think about Hannah Arendt, her independence from liberal or conservative, from different movements, from almost all movements, that he, she says on page 77, he developed out of independence the kind of thoughtful, rational consciousness of freedom which man experiences in himself. And in this freedom that one has, this independence, which has a kind of pathos of distance, a kind of, I am higher than everybody, I am myself, which is what Arendt was accused of by many people, especially around the Eichmann, that she just said what she thought and she didn't care how it impacted other people. And she says about, uh, about Jaspers here, there's a danger in this independence. In this, this is on page 77, 78. There's a danger in this unerring certainty of judgment, a pathos of distance, this sovereignty of mind. It can lead, as it did in Heidegger, to a kind of unworldliness. It can lead to a rebellion and freedom against conventions. It can lead you to retreat into yourself. But she says Jaspers was protected against those dangers because of one great fortune. And that great fortune was that he was never alone. Not only was he never alone in his mind, right? Not only was he never alone because he had a, he lived in a populated region of thought, but he was never alone because he had a friend, namely his wife. And on page 78, Arendt has this, this long description of Jasper's friendship with his wife. And I'm just going to read it. And I want to pay attention to a couple of aspects of it that are just so important. She says, if two people do not succumb to the illusion that ties, that the ties binding them have made them one. So if we don't become one person, but we each allow each respect each other in our own and in our differences, we can create a world anew between them. Pay attention to how many times this idea of a world anew or a different kind of world or a small world is going to be. So two friends create a world anew between them. Certainly for Jaspers, this marriage has never been merely a private thing. It has proved that two people of different origins, Jaspers' wife is Jewish, could create them between them a world of their own, right? A world between them, a world of their own. And from this world in miniature, this miniature world, he has learned as from a model what is essential for the whole realm of human affairs. Within this small world, he unfolded and practiced his incomparable faculty for dialogue, 
the splendid precision of his way of listening, the constant readiness to give a candid account of himself, the patience to linger over a matter under discussion, and above all, the ability to lure what is otherwise passed over in silence into the area of discourse, right? So in this small world, we develop a faculty for dialogue, for talking, with a precision, a splendid precision for listening, a readiness to give a candid account of oneself, to admit where one is maybe wrong or unsure, the patience to linger over things we're talking about and not try and put it to a close, and above all, the ability to lure what is otherwise passed over into silence, into the area of discourse, to make it worth talking about. Thus, in speaking and listening, he succeeds in changing, widening, sharpening, or as he himself would beautifully put it, in erhellen, or illuminating a world. I want to come back to a discussion we had when we were reading the Lessing essay after three weeks ago between Jerry Cohn and myself, where we talked about what the relation between a private friendship and a public friendship is. And I don't know if there's a theory, you know, I don't think Aaron has a theory of this, but I mean, here she does use an interesting word. She says, he created a world in miniature in his private friendship as from a model. And from this world in miniature, as from a model, we learn what is essential for the realm of human affairs. And so there is a way in which Arendt thinks about friendship, private friendship, as a model for, for thinking about public friendship or the world as itself. In the, in the essay, Citizen of the World, where she talks about his theory of communication, the Asper's thinking about communication, the, the idea, the, the key here is that in communication, there's no sovereignty. It's a kind of federated group. We renounce all binding universal authorities. It's a constant dialogue and conversation. There's a playfulness and a relativity to it. We dissolve all metaphysical dogmatisms, she says, in constant communication so that the principle itself is communication. Truth can never be grasped dogmatically. It's an existential talking through. And I think Jasper's idea of communication is deeply embedded in his idea of what it means to be a friend or what Arendt takes from him to mean to be a friend. And this kind of, as she describes it here, the lingering, the readiness to give account of oneself, the precision of listening is all part of the friendship, which builds a kind of trust over time in which you learn to love someone, not in the erotic sense, but in the sense of public respect and recognition, which is a model for what it means to be a citizen. I could end here, and I probably should. I'm going to add just one other thing that I've been thinking about as I've been reading these essays with you the last few weeks about friendship. And it's something that I, I find is driving me a little bit nuts, but I think it's important and I'll at least share it, which is, you know, Arendt talks about how friendship is more important than justice. And she talks about how we'd rather hold on to friendship than do what, you know, might be, you know, might be needed 
in, in justice, that friendship is sort of this core. Friendship is the foundation for what it means to think together with yourself, but also with others. It's also this respect that, uh, that builds a public world. And I think a question that has to keep coming up, if you really do think about friendship in this way, are what are its limits? What are the limits of friendship, right? When do we say to a friend, you know, what you did, I can't abide and we're no longer friends, right? Are there, are there limits to, to friendship among friends, right? You know, I was talking to somebody the other day and, and they were saying, well, the United States is no different from Russia and, you know, or, or Iran in, the, in this case. And I said, well, you know, what about Saudi Arabia chopping up a journalist who, who criticizes you? The United States, they don't do that. And when they say, oh, yeah, but they, 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 they torture people in Guantanamo and in prisons in, in Iraq and they, they, they send drones and kill human beings. And, and you have to admit that they're right. And, and so then the question is, well, at what point do we say to the prince of Saudi Arabia, you, you're beyond the pale? We can no longer respect you. You can no longer be part of the public community. Are we willing to do that? And at what point do people say to the United States, well, with all the stuff you've done, you're no longer part of the world community. This is the same kind of question, I think, as, to, as the question of at what point do we say to our friends, you've done something that I so dislike that you can't be my friend. And yet the point is that a friend and someone you respect even if they do something terrible, even if it is something you can't really forgive, you can still see their whole person as something worthy of being part of your world and part of the world. And I think one of the things that is so interesting and is so apparent in our time is that as soon as somebody does one thing wrong, we have a tendency to say they're no longer part of the respectable world. And part of the challenge of friendship is to understand that our friends will often do things we don't like, and yet we can still be friends with them. I mean, I was reading just yesterday an article in which I reminded myself, I knew this, but I'd forgotten it. That when Mary McCarthy was having an affair in London, Hannah Arendt was going around Europe and sent postcards to her husband from her in different cities to help persuade her, her husband, that she was having, you know, she was traveling with Hannah Arendt and not staying in London having an affair. What, you know, what is, what does it mean to have a friendship in which you're willing to Say to someone, I may not like what you're doing, but you're my friend. What does it mean to say to a world leader, whether it's, you know, Prince of Saudi Arabia or China or Russia even? I don't like what you're doing. At what point do we say, well, when, he, when Putin invades Crimea, we can still respect him. And when he takes over Georgia or invades Georgia, we can still respect him. But Ukraine, we can't. How do we make these decisions of when we can no longer be friends in the public or private state with someone. Anyway, that's sort of a, just something that I've been thinking a lot about in my engagement with Arendt over the last few weeks reading about friendship. 
And I just thought I'd share it with you because it's on my mind. Let's talk about this essay. Let's talk about friendship, whatever's on your mind. Vigdis. Uh, yes, there, there was a lot of thoughts that coming when I read this, but when it comes to friendship, my, in my experience, what kind of the limits of it is that uh, at the bottom of friendship lies trust, in my opinion. You have to trust those you are friends with. And, and I think there must be a kind of trust between you and the one that's your friend. And that goes also in the political realm, I think. There is the lack of trust is can be really catastrophic. And I think this is one of the places where Nietzsche also had something important to say when he said that not that you lied, but that I can't trust you anymore. And that was what troubled him. And it, it is this when you and it goes with betrayal also, I think, because if you, you if you can't trust anyone, if you feel that you really lied. You lied in a really bad way. I, I, I just can't trust you anymore. And I think this is something you see in, um, at least from my perspective, living in another country and just having from media what's going on in the U.S. No, it's a, it's a huge lack of trust. And it's also what I find in this essay, this communicability that means as I read it, there is a relation to the world he lives in. That's some basic in Jaspers. And I thought when she says on page 79 that Jaspers' thought is spatial because it forever remains in reference to the world and the people in it, but not to an existing space. Then it reminded me of her, uh, the thinking between past and future to understand, and but to understand the world we live in. And it's also what, when she said it's a break, not with tradition, but with the authority of tradition. And that is also this thinking between past and future, because you think you have the past, you have the history, and you have the broad specter, and you think your thinking goes on from all these, but they don't have the authority. And the last I thought about this was when she said this about his axis of thinking and when you came to that you had the uh, to strip these tradition of the dogmatic metaphysical claims and that went to philosophy and religions which I, which I thought was very interesting related to what she says in, in uh, Life of the Mind and the fallacy of metaphysics and in this I thought that there is something and especially when you see today in religions in the fundamentalistic interpretation, that is when they go straight into to, um, to this kind of a metaphysical interpretation. They have a given interpretation of something that you can't know anything about. So what always gives me a hope is when leaders of different religions can, can uh, communicate with each other and say that actually, we're all part of a kind of same spiritual world. We have just different stories about it, but we have to respect each other. So, so I don't know. Do you do you think this? Yeah. Do you see this kind of relation between Aaron's other writings and this in that way, and especially this thinking between past and future? And also, I wonder if you see this the importance of trust in friendship. 
Well, I, I, I definitely, um, yes, I definitely see the importance of trust and friendship. I mean, you know, when she speaks about friendship, there's a number of words that she continues to use. One is respect, right? That's the, I think the primary one, you know, I wonder for those of you who are German speaking, what word you think she's referring to? Is it Achtel or is it some other? I don't know. But she also talks about the long duration and that it takes time. And you build, you don't become friends with someone. You know, when I, I read that letter excerpt where she talks about, you know, where, where Blucher's defining it and he says, you know, it's friendship is without eros, but it starts with eros and then it becomes respect. So you can, you can start there, but you have to have a time where you learn to respect the person. You learn to value their character, their public, their demo and their, who they are. And you learn to trust that even if what they're saying is really something that you think is wrong, whether it's disagreement or it borders on betrayal, it's something you, because of who they are, you pull back from. I mean, again, this is a a minor example, and it's one that may upset and open up a can of worms, but I read it this morning, so I'll just bring it up. You know, you all know about Mr. DeSantis's, uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida and this legislation he's proposed about curriculum in, in schools in which there's a line in which he says in this curriculum, which is like a thousand pages long, he said, they say it said that you can, you teach also that there are certain skills and benefits that slaves learned, right? And it's an absurd line. And many people have come out, Kamala Harris, also Tim Scott, the African-American senator from South Carolina, who's also running for president, have come out and, and criticized him for it, rightly so. John McWhorter wrote a piece in the Times this week. I don't know when it came out because everything's online, in which he said, look, I read like hundreds of pages of this thousand page curriculum. And as stupid as this line is, it's one line in a thousand pages. And most of the other lines, the curriculum is actually quite good. And if you actually teach this curriculum, you're going to learn a lot about the horrors of slavery. And, you know, what he said is at some point we have to not take this one line out of context and, you know, read on. And I think he's saying, you know, and he's saying, look, I have no love for DeSantis. I think he's terrible. I don't, he's not impressive, but he didn't write, you know, this is written by a group of scholars. And what he's saying is at some point, a certain amount of trust is necessary that one bad line in a thousand page curriculum is not going to, is not something to doom the whole curriculum. Now, people can have their own political viewpoints. And, and again, I don't know if we should trust Ron DeSantis and his community. But I think that that's the kind of question McWhorter is raising that that you're that you're pointing out, um, Vigdis, is is the question of how important trust is. Because it's very rare that anyone in a life is not going to say some things that are not dumb. I know I've said some dumb things. I maybe said some today. And so the question is. At what point do you trust someone that even though they said something dumb, you don't hold that to be the, the, the content of who they are? 
I see Barbara Bechtelsheim uh, here, who has a wonderful new book. And also I owe an email to, which is always an embarrassing <laughs> thing to see. Um, so I apologize, but her book is Han Hannah Arendt and Heinrich Blucher, a biography of a pair. Uh, and uh, she might have some very interesting things to say about their friendship. Barbara. Uh, thank you, Roger. And I will never hold not writing an email to me against you. Um, I haven't betrayed you completely yet, Barbara. Not, not at all. Um, yeah. You might have noticed at the end of my book. As you've heard, I'm a biographer, so I'm also interested and I'd like to, whatever I read, I would like to explore what's the person behind the written text. Um, and as to friendship and on our end, I have two remarks or three very brief remarks. First of all, I've spoken with a number of people who knew Hannah Arendt in person, and with no exception, everyone would say to me, she was such a kind, warm-hearted person. When you read, I, I was surprised every time, and I think that's also part of her being a good friend, that she was an artist of friendship, that she had this warm attitude vis-a-vis -vis people. Um, secondly, also biographically, her friendship was not only talking and being in dialogue, she was also pragmatic. For example, when Gertrude and Karl Jaspers, right after the war, were really in a very bad place. They were still in Heidelberg. The Americans had come to Heidelberg, so the two of them were not deported to a concentration camp, but they didn't have enough food. So Hannah Arendt sent care packages to the couple, which was her, that was her attitude. I could give other examples when she was such a good friend and being very generous and pra pragmatic. However, as wonderful of a friend she was, I think there's also a tragic side to it. That and we we discussed before what what are the limits of friendship, and after her report about the Eichmann trial, some of her best friends like Kurt Blumenfeld, Gershom Scholem, Hans Jonas, stepped away from her. I think that's very sad, and yet, and this is why I mentioned it, Hans Jonas spoke at her memorial service in such a amazing, not only respectful, but full of admiration, um, really appreciating her as a person and her work and her being so brave in the world. So I, th I think in the case of Hans Jonas, that was friendship. I think that's right. I mean, the, the, Yon the Jonas's eulogy, uh, or I don't know, eulogy, Laudatio at the bar, at Bard when he I mean, I wasn't there. It was, I think it was in seven, it was in 76, I believe. So I was eight years old, but is, is a wonderful, and that's where he calls her a, ge a genius of friendship. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. and, um, and it's a beautiful, uh, eulogy. It's an, I don't know, Yana, Yana, maybe if we can find a copy of that, we can include that in the reading next for, for two weeks from now, when we read the Sholem letters, we could include Jonas's eulogy that he gave at Bard, just an idea. In any case, I think I think you're absolutely right that both that she was warm-hearted and pragmatic, but you know, she had this tragic 
event in her life with the Eichmann book uh, in which a lot of her very close friends, um, you mentioned three of them, criticized her in private and in public. And yet, at least my understanding is she didn't forsake any of them, Mm -hmm. right? She continued to call them friends and to address them as her friends, which is an extraordinary thing to do. Something we should all think about and learn, I hope, learn from. I don't know. I mean, Jonas obviously outlived her. I don't know to what extent. I mean, Sholem and her did not have much contact, I think, after that. I don't think Blumenfeld and her had much at all. But I don't think Sholem forsook her as a friend. He challenged her, but I think he did it within the bounds of friendship. Or she saw it as within the bounds of friendship. And that's an important distinction. And, you know, the question is, he didn't attack her in public. She, he asked her if she, if he could publish her letters, their letters, and she said yes. Mm-hmm. Right, that's different from someone taking, uh, just attacking her in public without doing it as a friend. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, I think that's in agreement with what you were saying, Barbara. So thank yeah. you. Thank you, Roger. Thank you all. Enjoy reading Hannah Arendt. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.